Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater. I'm a Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey. Where, along with my partners, Ann and Crystal, we do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues of the day. So let's jump right in. Unconscious bias is impacting your organizational performance, whether you know it or not. We all like to believe we're good people with good intentions, making decisions based on fact, right? Well, unfortunately, there's more at play than we realize. Our guest today writes, and I'm reading some of her words right now because they're just, I can't write them better, that our brains are constantly filtering, sorting, and using shortcuts to handle the overwhelming amount of information we receive each day. And these shortcuts are often where the term unconscious bias slips in. Left unchecked, this can impair our decision-making, limit the performance, innovation, and opportunities of others. This is a topic I've wanted to address on my show for quite some time. And lucky for me, I had just done a show recently with the good folks at Franklin Covey who were celebrating, I think, the 30th or 35th anniversary of Stephen Covey's epic book on the seven habits. And my guest told me about a new book coming out from one of their employees and writers, uh, Paula Fuller, who was Franklin Covey's chief thought leader on inclusion and bias. And I'm so honored to have Paula here for Financially Speaking to not only enlighten me, because trust me, I need this as much as anyone's out there, but really take us through her new book, which I know we're on audio, but I'm, I'm holding up because it's really a pretty cover. The Leader's Guide to Unconscious Bias, How to Reframe Bias, Cultivate Connection, and Create High Performance Team. The book is published by Simon & Schuster and already receiving some very notable praise. So. Pamela, Pam, which do you prefer? I prefer Pamela. Thanks for asking. Great, great. Okay. It's funny, I interviewed Bruce Springsteen's sister a few uh, months ago. As you can see, it's a big part of my life behind me. And I thought of her as Pam Springsteen. And she says, no, I really like Pamela. And I said, <laughs> that's great. That's terrific. I'm happy to say that. Anyway, before we get into this very important issue in your book, I think it would be great if we can take our listeners through your journey that has led you to not only your position at work, but to writing this really approachable and very practical book, especially in a year of such social unrest in America. Let's just start with that, let alone a global pandemic. So tell us a little bit about your early career, maybe where you grew up and kind of the professional journey that, that led you to this passion. I am thrilled to be here and to talk to you about this. I am from New York. Uh, my family is from the Dominican Republic. So I'm a first generation American and was born in, in Washington Heights in New York and sort of split my time between New York and New Jersey. And I have always been interested in issues of diversity and equity and inclusion really through, I think, an equity lens. And I think that's something about, you know, being different in being first-generation American, being a Black woman, being Afro-Latina, right? Not necessarily the sort of picture of Latinas that you see on TV. And I think all of that influenced the lens through which I look at the world. And simultaneously, my parents were very intent on ensuring that I sort of worked hard and, and was really unquestionable in my, you know, whether I get to be an American, right? And whether I get to live the American dream. So it's always been a lens through which I've looked at the, at the world. 
world is like who gets to be in power and who gets to have certain opportunities and what does that mean for me and my place in it and how do I sort of you know find my place in it and I, I started my career in nonprofit really trying to impact equity mm-hmm. and quickly felt like I need to move into the private sector where I felt like I could make more more impact than as sort of an entry-level special events, like fundraising and advocacy person in nonprofit. And so I transitioned to the private sector. Uh, I was first a contractor at the Department of Defense, where I worked in an office of equal employment opportunity and diversity. And that's really interesting because you know, trying to build a Department of Defense, a public sector office that is reflective of the American people, right? It literally serves the American people. So just thinking about the demographics of that and, and what that that looked like and, and all the questions that it brought up, like why are organizations more diverse on the front line than they are in leadership? And how do we impact that? Right. And for all of the formal processes we have, what are the informal ways that people succeed in an environment and how do we impact that, right? And how do we ensure that each leader is allowing for difference and opportunity and sort of opening the door for opportunity versus closing it and enhancing possibilities versus limiting it. And that line of inquiry, if you will, really brought me to Franklin Covey where we're so focused on behavior change. And we have this, you know, you mentioned the foundations of our work, Seven Habits, which is the sort of grand assertion of that is that everyone is capable of greatness and that they can implement practices and behaviors to be great. And then you think about the realities of diversity and inclusion in organizations and that not everyone gets opportunities, right? Not everyone gets chances. So so that sort of led me to these questions. And we worked to develop some content around unconscious bias and then wrote the book, to try to enhance the number of people who had access to it, frankly. So I just want to jump back to the Defense Department because my son, who was with Deloitte, that was one of his jobs working there um, and felt, if I recall, how kind of shocked he was, uh, very disorganized and, and it just was not, it kind of met what he thought his expectations would be. What was your experience like at the Defense Department and just in general? You know, I had come from nonprofit, so I don't think I was particularly shocked by the reality of working in public sector. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, and but the how government, just, the government is so uniquely different in many ways than, well, it's a public sector, I guess that's true. So yeah, just just public in nature. But right. you know, my experience at the Defense Department was just the magnitude was overwhelming. It was like, how do you make change across something that is so big? and cumbersome, right? And hierarchical. Mm -hmm. And I think DOD is, while most public sector agencies are fairly hierarchical, they're very, you know, there's not really a lot of places for informal leadership or agility, right? And this is one of the struggles of, I think the government more broadly is how can we be innovative against the backdrop of all of this regulation? But the scope of it is what struck me always is like, okay, I can get this group doing something differently, but how do I get that times 10,000, right? How do I get that times 200,000? The magnitude is what always struck with me. And I think it's why things like the book were so appealing. So it's like, okay, we can't, I I can run around and do keynotes and I can do consulting and work with leaders one-on-one to impact their behavior change. But how do we, you know, we've learned so much about how we make progress on bias and how do we exponentially increase access to that, to those Mm -hmm. ideas. So why don't we go to school now and 
and Pamela, please educate us. Let's start with the term. You know, I think the term unconscious bias and and why, like I said, this has become the subject of, of books and TED Talks and major social movements. Is there a way to, you know, describe the term that you feel comfortable with? Yeah. So for our purposes, we define the term bias as preference, right? A preference in favor of or against a person or a thing or place. And I think we often hear bias defined as inherently negative. We think of bias as prejudice or stereotype or inherently bad. But to the point you made in the, in the intro, right, to be human is to have bias. And our brains are naturally wired for these cognitive shortcuts that help us navigate the world. So as we think about bias as a preference, the question becomes not, are my biases good or bad? They don't have inherent value on their face, but our biases do impact our behavior and that behavior has a consequence, right? Mm -hmm. So the goal I think in this whole conversation is to think about what is the consequence of a bias or preference that I have? Is it fact or is it how I feel? And is it inhibiting of someone's possibilities or enhancing? So brain is, a, is, is kind of, I guess, one of the more important organs we have. And I've heard you in, the, in, in other interviews and, and, and in the book talk a lot about the brain and cognitive shortcuts and, and things that, that really are, have been built there for, for generations. And I'm curious if it's... I don't know if we go all the way back to the caveman days, but, you know, the, you know, it's so interesting when, you know, with uh, everybody looking at their ancestry and finding out their 1% Neanderthal or whatever, you know, crazy things are there. But how far back really are the, the genetics of, of what lead to this unconscious bias? Because you can have, I mean, I'm just going to be very open. And I had a great aunt that was incredibly racist. I mean, as a 10-year-old, my father, I mean, my father and my mother, we were at some event and we walked out of it because of comments that were made. We were just so offended. And I was 10 years old and I, I knew how wrong that was. And, you know, that, that, that's something that stuck with me on a positive nature. But, you know, I just, I just wonder where, where that all comes from, from, from a cognitive standpoint. Yeah, I, I certainly don't think we're, anyone is born racist, right? But there are these sort of three parts of our brain, right? The primitive part of our brain, the emotional part of our brain, and the thinking part of our brain. And the primitive part of our brain, although we don't live in a world where we need to defend, you know, against the saber-toothed tiger, right, for our survival, the primitive part of our brain hasn't actually evolved past a lot of that survival instinct, and so when we're in circumstances where we feel under threat or we feel fear or intimidation or anxiety, right, all of that is driven or much of that is driven by that primitive part of our brain. And some of what our primitive brain does is it puts people in categories. It's one of the automatic systems that our brain uses to navigate the world. But what we think about those categories is really driven by everything that's been poured into us over our lifetime. So we were raised with values and beliefs and we experience different things across our life and our context changes, right? What happened to you when you were 10 and then what happened to you when you were 25 and then what happened to you when you were 45, right? All of those things impact the lens through which we look at the world. And so really thinking about, you know, in our work and in the book, you'll read about this relationship between our identities and the biases that we hold. 
that when we think about our identities and the things that we value, when we do have bias that is negative about someone else, there's often some conflict there, right? And our brain, that primitive part of our brain is suspicious of difference, right? It wants to explore that further. So I think those are all things that are important for us to be aware of to sort of build this muscle of introspection so we can think critically about the lens through which we're looking at a circumstance. So are there ways that you can cultivate connection to rewire your brain and, and overcome them? I think that being aware of when we have high emotion or when we feel overwhelmed or when we feel under duress in some way is really important. So when we think about strategies for overcoming where we have negative bias, I think mindfulness is an important skill. Mm -hmm. And I think this art of connection using empathy and curiosity is really critical. You see this a lot in children, right? Children ask really wonderful questions and they listen for the responses. But when adults have conversations, we ask questions with the intent to respond. So as someone else is talking, we're like formulating our response in our head. We're sort of waiting for them to shut up so we can chime in. <laughs> right. And so as we get older, we feel like we know everything and we have less of that exploration. And so we're, we're coming to quick assumptions about people's perspective and experience and inherent value without really exploring more about them, right? In, in the absence of information, our brain creates a story. So I think we can think about our day and our interaction, are we creating space to actually explore other people, right? To ask mm. them critical questions and really listen empathically to their responses. Are there positive as well as negative biases? Absolutely. I mean, there's over 188 different kinds of biases. There's this cool tool called the Cognitive Bias Codex that, that lines them up. But you know, in-group bias can be positive if you're part of the in-group, <laughs> right? It can be, can be helpful. There's bias, there's a bias called halo effect. And it's the idea that someone is sort of crowned positive, right? They are positive. Our experience with them has been positive and, and they can sort of do no wrong. And so there's certainly times when we're on the receiving end of positive bias or we have positive bias that is helpful. And there are other times when we have biases that are negative that are not serving us or the people around us. And being able able to think about bias through that lens is important, right? Because it tells us what we need to explore and tells us to throw out what's not serving us and those around us and, and think about those circumstances differently. So for people that are listening in general, how, how would you suggest that they identify the types of biases that they didn't even know they have? Yeah. I think that there are a few strategies that can be helpful here. The first is thinking about our identity, right? I have a colleague who identifies and women she works with who are ambitious. She says ambitious like it's a like a four-letter word. She'll say so-and-so is very ambitious, right? And so there's some assumptions behind that, whereas I very proudly identify as ambitious. I think right. the rising tide lifts all ships. It's good for so me and Franklin Covey. Positive. <laughs> It's good. But what does that mean for how my colleague and I would engage? I learned that from my Franklin day planners back in the day. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's amazing the legacy of those planners, right? Yeah, we had a whole conversation. It's uh, not to go off track, but last night at dinner, uh, I was talking about your book and I was having this conversation with my kids and my wife and I were talking about, you know, my Franklin day planner and, 
and she remembered it, but she was a Philofax person. So mm. she, that's all she was taught. And the kids are like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, well, guess what? You know, we didn't have these calendars that, you know, we could just set up on our phone and, and, you know, we had to keep track of things. And, and, and I was explaining the Franklin day planner and how it was so much more that than just a calendar to me, but they just, they, they didn't get it at all. I have to dig, I have to dig them up. Cause I know I have, probably seven or eight years of Franklin planners still in boxes somewhere. <laughs> so anyway, you, you were saying. Yes, they do live on and they right. are still available for purchase oh. <laughs> from another company called okay. Franklin Planner, which is sort of funny. Anyway, I sort of lost my thought. What were we no, thinking? that's okay. We were, we were talking about, the, you know, how people can identify the biases yes. they know that they have. Yeah. So, so I think that, you know, what is, what do these two definitions of ambition mean for how we both engage with someone we identify as ambitious? So I think thinking about those parts of our identity is important because it gives us insight into some preferences that we might have or what we value as we're identifying talent and potential in other people or possibilities in other people. I also think it's really important to expand our respective experiences. So we we have people we engage with on a day-to-day basis. And then there are lots of people that based on where we live or how we live or what we do, we might not ever have exposure to those people. I love the photo project, Humans of New York. It sort of oh, highlights this that. point, love right? My, yeah. You look at the picture and think of a story. Like, what does it make right. you think of? And right. then you read the story. It's never what you thought of, right? It sort of pushes your, you get this, see this little view or glimpse into someone's life and experience. And as you read those stories and look at those pictures, it brings up feelings. I feel empathy about this. I feel anger about this. I don't understand this, right? So the more that we can expand It's almost like it's the new Rorschach in many ways. They should get rid of the Rorschach test and just, you know, have everybody read the Humans of New York Instagram. (laughs) Right, right. And make comments. It's so true. It's so true. And that kind of learning and additional exposure, I think, is really valuable. I was reading this story someone was sharing about, like, Black Twitter, right? So Black Twitter is a is an entity <laughs> of social commentary. Right. And they were saying that before Twitter, before Black Twitter, these were conversations that were happening that people who were not Black did not have access to. Can you explain? I, I, I don't want to be naive, but I heard that expression earlier today, I think on one of the morning programs. What does that mean exactly? So Black Twitter is not a person and it's not like an actual account. Right. But it is the collection of Black voices on Twitter that will respond to things that are happening in society or in culture or even just like Black culture as a subset of the larger American culture. And so the lead singer of Arcade Fire was actually commenting on this. He was saying that not specifically about Black Twitter, but that social media gives you this front row seat to conversations that you wouldn't have had access to previously, right? So there's all this stuff that Black Twitter is saying, or there's, there's like a huge social media presence for Latinx people and for the queer community and for Native people, right? Indigenous peoples. Sure. And these are all conversations that were happening insular to those communities that we can now observe and learn from, right? And so much of that is like educational. I, I, I don't personally know that I know of. Mm-hmm. I definitely don't have a close relationship with a trans person, Right. right? But I have no excuse at this point for not understanding the trans experience based on what is available for me to access. It's another dinner conversation we've had <laughs> in my, our house lately. Um, my kids have done a really 
good job in, in, in educating more of that world because they do know people. Whereas, you know, I, I honestly don't. So I, it's, I think that's really important. Um, you, you know, you talk in the book about, and you just said 180 biases, and I'd love to cover them all, but, but can you hit us with the top three maybe? Um, and let's dig into them a little bit. Yeah, I don't know that there's a top three, but I'd say, yeah. you know, confirmation bias is huge, that we go into circumstances thinking we know the answer, and then we only identify the information that supports that belief. So instead of asking the question, like, what is the best thing to have for breakfast? I search for why are bananas the best thing to have for breakfast, right? We just seek out information that confirms our existing belief. Or in an interview, I say, Mitch is the most talented. And then Mitch starts and makes some mistakes. And I ignore those because I'm like, no, I said Mitch is the most talented and I only see the talent, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's really common. I think affinity bias, this idea that we are drawn to people where we see ourselves reflected, Right. I'm like, well, I'm fabulous and you're very much like me. Of course, you're fabulous. Right. We just give this sort of in-group or affinity bias. It's our brains. It's the easy button in that primitive part of our brain. It says like me is safe and different than me is unsafe. And I think negativity bias is quite common. It's that we're more impacted by negative experiences than positive ones. You see this in uh, 360 assessments, right? right? Or any kind of evaluation feedback that you get all this glowing feedback, but there's three or four negative comments. And you're like, I bet I know who said that. And <laughs> I'm going to go talk to them about it. And right when you don't go talk to the people who said wonderful things, right. that we're, we, we are more substantially impacted by those negative things and we let them outweigh the good sometimes. So interesting when you were just, because you were talking about Black Twitter, because it leads right to the next question that you talk a little bit about in the book, but it's something that just, it drives me crazy. So what part does social media let's say, even the algorithms, either intentionally or unintentionally, are behind all this bias. I mean, you know, I can name them all, you know, Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, they, they know, all know more about us than we may even know about us. And they're taking, they may even be taking our biases without us knowing we even have those biases. And as I think to the future, which I do a lot as a parent, I'm sure as you do as well, that scares me. Yeah. I mean, the algorithm is designed to give you information you want to see. And so it does know more about you. And there's, I'm sure you've had this experience. Like my husband and I will be on the couch talking about something and then I'll open up my social media and there's an ad for that thing. Oh my God. It happens. It, it happens a lot. I mean, we, my wife unplugged the Apple home because she was convinced that was it. And I said, no, it's your phone. It's not because <laughs> you've got Siri on your phone. So it's there. Or we, we don't have Alexa, but if Alexa was here, she would know. Or I mean, it, but this happens all the time. We could be, this is probably why I get Allbirds ads like 100% every day. Cause I, I talk about Allbirds. I love Allbirds. I wear Allbirds. Um, and obviously anyone in my life that knows me knows the Bruce Springsteen connections that I have and my, that world. And I just get flooded with a lot of Bruce Springsteen related material, some of which I love, which is music just in general. Um, just mention Arcade Fire. I love that band. But, you know, it's just so strange how it, there's just all this information and it's being it's being manipulated, whether Zuckerberg or Bezos says they're not. Of course, it's being manipulated. And is that going to, you know, make books like this 
unnecessary in 25 years or is it going to make it even more necessary? I think more necessary, right? Because what it does is it pushes us all into, you know, more firmly standing by our view versus exploring alternative perspectives. So I think we all have a responsibility when we think about the information that we consume and the media, you know, what are we reading and listening to and watching and who are we getting information from? How can we disrupt that? right? Instead of, it's sort of lazy to follow the algorithm, right? Like so many people are getting their news from Facebook and Facebook is just feeding you articles you agree with based on the algorithm. And so thinking about, well, where do you get your news, right? Or, you know, something like Humans of New York, right? How, How are you seeking out alternative perspectives and even reading different authors or listening to different podcasts, right? There are so many communities and media outlets that exist just to amplify marginalized voices. And those are, they provide a great service for those marginalized voices and a great opportunity for people who are not part of those communities to really learn, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we, we, we don't always opt into that and we should. One of the things Guy Raz uh, said to me uh, when I interviewed him a few weeks ago, which just, this is just one of, one of those things that just sticks with me. Because, you know, this is a guy who has 20 million downloads a month on his show, How I Built This, which is, you know, still one of my favorite podcasts because I love hearing, you know, the stories of, of how Peloton to Uber to whatever it is was built. But he's been doing it with resilience uh, since the pandemic, and, and it's been even more interesting. But we were talking about how everyone's in broadcasting, and I, you know, this is something um, I don't know if you're familiar with Gary Vaynerchuk, Gary V. You know, he's a kind of a voice out there, and he's been a client of mine, and I've I've been involved with his uh, social media marketing agency, and have known the guy for 15 years, who's been kind of saying all of these things that are actually happening now, and you know, and I, he made this comment to me that with all of us being broadcasters, that, you know, you could do a Facebook Live, let's say, and 100 people are watching. And you may think, oh, that's nothing. You know, I want millions or whatever. Well, where are you going to go to say something and 100 people are going to just come on your corner and listen to you? You know, and I was thinking about, being in London and in one of the parks where there's a speaker's corner, I think it's called, um, and people would get up on the boxes and uh, soap boxes, which is where they come up with, came up with that name, and talk about things. And I just love that we all have that ability to be heard, whether it's through a podcast like this, whether it's through the work that you folks do at Franklin Covey, or whether it's just that one person that has something really interesting to say And yes, there's a hundred people that really want to hear that. But the problem I have with it is, is leadership is that in general, I don't see a lot of strong leadership and, and I, I see it in some industries a little bit more, but I think we're not there yet. And, and I'm just curious from your perspective, what are some good examples of really strong leadership in the workplace when it comes to bias you can name names or not, and, and also the negative effects that leaders may be putting into the workplace, that negativity bias, because boy, have I seen that throughout my career, and I'm not blaming any of the firms that I have worked for. I am blaming individual people that I have worked for and, and just seen just, you know, mind-exploding commentaries. Some pushed at me, too. 
Yeah, I think I've been asked so much about this recently. So, so I, I think a couple things. I think that we often give away our power if we're not the number one person. So I think that leaders at all levels can make impact on this subject. And we sometimes stew in what is missing at the top. And there are ways in which we can build influence and model inclusive leadership that makes a tremendous impact for the future. To your point about what, where we are in 20 years, right? Like right. the people are just, the people who are here now are just not going to be here, right? <laughs> so they're just, they're going to be retired. And there's this opportunity for how we build leaders and make change now. So I, I think that is really important. Like so, so many middle managers sort of give away their power to build an inclusive team or inclusive dynamic or to behave in a way where they're proactively building diversity and an equitable and inclusive environment. And I just want to highlight that because I think it's, it's, we should not dismiss that power. Like a middle manager has worked hard to get where they are and they have some influence and they should lean into that. I also think that the best leaders when it comes to this are getting out of their own way that all of the toxicity we see and all of the reluctance around inclusion and these difficult conversations, it's defensiveness, right? It's insecurity. It's the idea that this means that someone's trying to push me out of the way. And, and I just think none of that is true. I think that a rising tide lifts all ships. And we look at, I mean, this is not pie. Like it's not going to run out. Right. And we have to look at it through the abundance mentality and and not this fear sort of scarcity driven mentality. So I think the leaders who are able to be successful, they have gotten out of their own way about it. They're like, this is actually what I need to do. And, and what's what I've seen sort of interestingly is that as leaders think more about their legacy, like as they get closer to leaving an organization, they lean more into inclusion. Because now it's not about like them, their own career. I, that's just been sort of an interesting observation. And I think that we should think about this through that lens of legacy and like, do you want to be on the wrong side of this, right, over time and be someone who hampered diversity and equity and inclusion or who didn't prioritize it? The other thing I think is that consumers are pushing us to prioritize this, right? Our clients are saying, Whatever industry you're in, your clients are saying, you don't get to not be good at this anymore. That's it. Enough is enough. We've been talking about this for 30 years and we're not making enough progress. And so I think there are leaders who may not be on board with their heart to inclusion, but are recognizing the practical implications and leaning into what that means for their business. And so I don't, I am of the mind, I don't care what drives you. I just want you, <laughs> I don't care what's driving the change, but I want it to persist and continue to grow. So I don't know if that's helpful. Yeah, no, that is helpful. And, and, and I'm, I'm thinking of, of a lot of other companies. And like I said, my wife's company had a diversity training recently and was very eye-opening and, and helpful. But if you're, if you're an HR or talent acquisition or the chief heart officer, like my friend Claude Silver is, which is one of the great titles of all time. Um, <laughs> she's actually Gary Vaynerchuk's company's uh, HR person, but you know everybody's a heartbeat out there. I, I love the way this woman runs this organization, uh, 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 unlike anything I've ever seen. But if you're responsible for financial wellness in the workplace, where should people go to find the best programs? You know, how do they, how do you how do they get started? 
financial wellness and or you're in HR and, and, and you notice that your organization, you think that they're not paying enough attention. They notice this unconscious biasness themselves. And, you know, obviously your book is a, is a terrific source and is and really, I think, is, is, is a game changer in many ways. But there are programs that are out there, too. And and I'm only bring this up not to be funny, but I think back to The Office TV mm. show, which mm-hmm. ran an episode years ago called Diversity Day, which can be looked at in many different lights. Let's just leave it at that. And, and I'm just wondering, and obviously the point of that particular episode was to show how, you know, what a bad leader uh, Michael Scott was and what he really thought that was all about. But what, what types of programs do you think companies should look at or really need to do? This is a, a bit of a shameless self-promotion, but <laughs> I think that the, the okay. book was really written with this in mind, right? The Leader's Guide to Unconscious Bias. And, and as you've looked at it, you'll notice that at the end of each chapter, there is this reflection for individuals and application for leaders. And so in that sense, we are trying to drive to action. And I think a lot of the work in this space is theoretical, right? It's sort of theory and here's the thing. And and we are really driving practical application. And at Franklin Covey, we have a corresponding organizational learning and development program that companies can come to us for, right? And, And this is the kind of consulting that I do on a daily basis is working with executive teams to ask these questions. What is it that you could do differently? The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. The diversity conversation has been happening for 30 years and we still do not see the kind of change that one would expect if we really tried to change something for 30 years. And so as an executive team, as a management team, as an organization, what are you willing to do differently to impact this? And I think any any learning and development initiative or organizational development initiative should be driven by that question. What are you willing to do differently? I also think that as each individual thinks about this, each individual leader, there is a reason that it matters. And that reason is going to look really different for all of us. I mean, for me, I have two boys. And as a parent, my job is to build a world in which or contribute to building a world in which they are not encumbered in what their life is going to look like, right? That they are not inhibited in their possibilities. And that drives me. I have to throw myself at that every day. That is my reason. It's really different than your reason. It's going to be really different than all of the people listening to this podcast. But I do think that there is value in thinking about that. Why does this matter to me? Or if it doesn't matter to me, right? If I am feeling this hesitation and recalcitrance and even defensiveness, why, why is that, right? Like what is driving that feeling? And I think each of us needs to do some of that sort of individual work to be able to even opt into the programs and strategies available to make change. Hmm. And that's so interesting because, you know, you, you say how, you know, we've been having this conversation for 30 years and we're really not, not really getting anywhere. I mean, we're, as you know, when we talked about this earlier, we don't get political on this show, but I think it's, honest to say we're a divided nation Mm. and we were a divided nation in 1865 and we needed a reconstruction period to work through that and then we became even a more divided nation and then we had another reconstruction period to get through that and then finally it looked like 
things were going well, and then here we go once again, we're a divided nation. And I guess what's, what worries me, and this comes back to the cognitive research that you've done, is like, as a white male approaching 60 in a few weeks, I can only imagine, you know, the biases that my brain has had in there that I, I'm not consciously aware of. And I want to make sure that my kids' generation block these ridiculous biases. And again, I don't even know what they are, but, you know, you say that some may be preferences, and I, I just, it's, it's just sort of a fine line. And, and, and I just, I, like I said, I'm so, I, I hope I'm doing a podcast when I'm 90 and we can have a great conversation in 30 years and be talking about life on Mars or something, not this. Right. Yeah. I, th- I think that, that first of all, conversation around unconscious and implicit bias doesn't negate the reality of real and conscious bias. So I think what I, what I hear in, in some of that question is like, okay, there's stuff that's unconscious, but there's also stuff that's conscious. And how do we ensure that both things are improved in the future? Right. right. And I think that the conscious stuff we have to address. I mean, if, it, if you can state it and articulate it, it's out in the world and you're responsible for it. And we have to feel, you know, we've to feel a responsibility, whether that's driven by because this is the right thing to do, or it's driven by a connection to performance and why we don't want people in our organizations to be marginalized and inhibited because then they're unable to achieve the results we're looking for. Whatever is driving it, you have to sort of own that. I think in terms of unconscious biases that may have existed or sort of generational biases, I mean, we are seeing that that is improving over time. The way that society at large felt about the queer community 10 years ago is very different than how people under 18 feel about the queer community today, Correct. right? There's like these things that are issues for some people that are just not issues. Right. My son is a big fan of Rick Rorden mm-hmm. and he writes these books about fantasy, right? And, and the Greek gods, right? Like the Percy Jackson movies. Right. And they, there are gender fluid characters in those books right. and he's 11, right? So he came to me and had a conversation with me about pronouns and just wanted me to understand the difference between pronouns and why it's so important to use people's proper pronouns. So this is not going to be an issue for him in 10 years, right? So I think some of that is <laughs> generationally right. like well, moving good. forward too. In, in the book, the, uh, the Leader's Guide to Unconscious Bias, which folks, you've got to get your hands on whether you are the boss um, or you might suggest it to the boss, You speak about using inclusionary language to keep boundaries open with your team. Can you kind of share some examples of that? What's the best way to speak up if you really feel this bias at your workplace? Because a lot of people are still afraid to speak up in America. Yeah, I think depending on the level. In American work, in in work, let's just say in work. At work, right. Otherwise, Americans are known to be rather vocal. Exactly. Um, (laughs) So I I think that depending on the level of authority you have in the organization, you you will be, I think, be able to be more bold or more careful in terms of how you speak up, right? So there's there's a reality to their circumstances in which we have formal authority and we can just call a spade a spade, right? We can just identify a challenge and also make it clear that we're not willing to tolerate that kind of behavior, that kind of language. There are other circumstances, and I think this is more frequent when we don't feel like we have that kind of authority. And in those circumstances, I think it's really valuable to lead with questions, right? Like, what did you mean when you said fit? Can you share an example of that, right? Or when you said this, I just want to understand 
what you were alluding to, right? These, right. these kinds of questions, they allow the other person to think and not necessarily feel as defensive as if you are accusing them of something. I also think those conversations are best had in private, right? It is the feedback rule that praise in public, critique in private, and really ensuring that you're creating sort of a safe space and even some preparation. Like people don't want to be blindsided, maybe sending a note or saying, hey, I'd like to talk with you. Can we schedule some time? So I want to understand this circumstance better. Um, so I think just like you wouldn't go into like a negotiation cold, you wouldn't go into this difficult conversation cold. You would set some expectations and then lead with questions and inquiry to sort of help the other person get to the point where they're thinking about it in the way that you are. So here we are in 2020. We've had this just incredible year, this global pandemic, where we've seen a lot of our homes in the same rooms and everything else. But I'm wondering, because I'm always looking for silver linings uh, in, in this particular year. And you know, there, there's, some, there's some wonderful ones that mostly have to do with, uh, with family, I would say. But as far as reframing bias without people being in offices, so a year ago, we're all working in an office. We're all dealing with whatever issues we're dealing with. And all of these things that you, you talk about to, to cultivate these connections are happening uh, in this social world. Mm -hmm. And now you have companies like Microsoft, for example, talking about, yeah, it, we're going to just work remotely forever or Google or whoever. And as a social animal, personally, I need people. I mean, it's nice, you know, from time to time, but, you know, I think we, we need that interaction and that's something that we really miss. But on the other hand, I wonder how that relates specifically to what your message is in the book. I think that there are additional concerns as we think about remote work. So, you know, some people feel micromanaged, some people feel finally liberated, right? <laughs> some people feel yeah. that there's more bias in their current circumstance, other people feel that there's less bias. I mean, if if you if you worked if you were not co-located with your team previously, you actually feel more included now because everyone is not co-located. And so, I think that as we think about a remote world, it just prompts additional questions that we do ask in the book and ask people to explore further, like who would feel better in this circumstance, right? Or how can this diminish bias for some people and enhance bias for others? And, and I think the nature of the biases changes, right? People are talking about parents who have children and they're doing virtual school. They might feel like there's more bias at the moment because there's more negative bias for them because they are occupied with their virtual schooling and, and not able to participate in some things or be as fully present, right, in the virtual room. I think to your point about the silver lining, I think for a lot of people, there has been value to having a little bit more autonomy to work virtually, a little bit more authority to drive what their day looks like and, and how they spend their time. And I think for other people, it's been challenging because they feel to your point about being a social animal, that they're disconnected now and it's harder for them. I think it just depends on the individual. And that's really the nature of bias is that it is a different experience for each of us. And we don't get to tell other people whether they're being marginalized or diminished. And we don't get to dismiss those feelings from others. We just have to lead in a way that allows for all of that to come up. Is there anything, is the term Zoom bias <laughs> come up? 
I mean, that's, you know, you think about that and all the, the meetings that go on every day and some people don't want to show their faces and some do and some do for, for bias reasons maybe and some do because they haven't had their hair done in six months, what, whatever, <laughs> whatever it is. But, you know, I just think about what a different world that is and, and I also don't think that's, you know, we will get back to more of a workspace, but I do think there's going to be the, the virtual world will just grow and grow. And have you noticed any sort of bias or, or anything that's jumped out from that? I've read quite a bit about that in education, right? That you think about all of these students are going home and they might not all have environments that they're comfortable sharing. Or you think about college, like for those who went away to school, you're all in the dorm and you're sort of on equal footing in terms of your, what, what your house looks like. Right. And then everyone goes home and all of a sudden, like we see that there are socioeconomic disparities and those are magnified. I think the same can be said of work, right? Someone, some people do not have a separate workspace. Right. And I think those folks definitely have felt marginalized because turning on the camera can feel embarrassing or feel exposing, but if they don't turn it on, then they might be judged harshly, right? So, so I think it has, it requires of us an additional sensitivity because we are now in people's homes hmm. and there are just some, some realities of what everyone's home looks and feels like. You know, it's interesting you brought that up because I had a conversation with someone recently who works at LinkedIn. I've worked with a lot of folks that have been executives at LinkedIn and have known them for many years. And, and one of the things that consultants that are out there helping people with their LinkedIn pages in general talk about is how important the picture is and how critical that is and that there's this bias. And I actually, uh, I, I feel I have this bias. Like if I don't see a photo, I'm wondering, what are you hiding? Mm. And, and I, don't, I don't think about that in any other aspect of life except for LinkedIn. Yeah. So, and again, I don't hire people for a living, but if I was hiring people and, and I see 10 people and, you know, there's two that just, I, they made the conscious decision not to have a picture. But then on the other hand, that's not really fair because there might be a legitimate reason. And, and it's, just, it's, just, it's just a topic that, that's come up in a, in a number of conversations because I'm constantly hearing from people, you know, talking about your LinkedIn profile and how important that photograph is. And then on the other hand, I looked at the same conversation I had with these two guys from LinkedIn on my show a few months ago. We were talking about how people have different kinds of poses and look differently. And, you know, this, this gentleman was saying that he says, you know, you, you know, being in the financial business, you're, you expect to see people in a suit and tie or whatever, look a certain way. But if you're somebody who sells pools for a living, it's okay that there you are in a bathing suit by the pool, all right? That's okay that that's your LinkedIn profile. Or if you're a contractor and you're, you're wearing your yellow hat or what, what, whatever it is, and it's just, it's just, I don't know, I just thought the whole thing was just so, I didn't really know how to take all of that in because it's, it's there, I, I feel that, you know, if I had to list a bias that I know that I have, LinkedIn causes a lot of it. And it's not, again, it's not about race, religion, and any, any, any of the normal biases that are out there. It's just like, you don't show me your picture. I'm wondering, what are you hiding? 
Mm-hmm. Is that really unfair? I, I feel like I'm being unfair <laughs> thinking that. It is like in the, before we started recording, we were sort of chatting about those like first impressions. And when you Mm -hmm. show up in an interview and people, right. I think LinkedIn has eliminated a lot of that because we know what people look like before we meet them. So when you don't see the picture and you're suspicious, I guess the question is like, but why are we entitled to see them? Right. It's just, I don't know. It's interesting. I mean, I, I have the same question, but I also coming from DOD, I also work with quite a bit of people and have worked with quite a, quite a few people who have security clearances that don't allow. Well, that I understand. Yeah. So, so I sometimes lean into something like that. I'm like, well, well, if you are wanted in 25 States, that, that, that's another (laughs) good reason to, to probably, you know, um, not do that. So I want to leave you with one question that I, I, I stole from Tim Ferriss and I, it's just such a good question that I'm just going to forever steal it. Um, but it, 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 his book, Tribe of Mentors, he asked the question that you're given a giant billboard and you can mm. put any message out there. Billboard could be wherever you want it to be, could be all over the place, but it's your message that you want to leave people with. And his, what he asks is, what is the question and why? I think for me, the question is, where is their opportunity for you to expand potential, right? Or opportunity for you to identify talent differently. Maybe it's a more focused question, right? But I think that leaders think really critically about all the work that they do and the impact of their work on results and the impact of their work on their teams. And I think they they don't always think about inclusion and adding this inclusive lens to their thinking. So where is their opportunity for them to expand possibilities, I guess, is the question. Because I think each of us has authority and power, formal and informal, and we can make change in that individual way. And if every leader asked that question, I think we would see the data around diversity and inclusion improve. Okay. Well, Pam, thank you so much for taking time today to really educate my audience and me personally on something that I I know I'm going to continue to be thinking about a whole lot more. The book is The Leader's Guide to Unconscious Bias how to reframe bias, cultivate connection, create high-performance teams, written by our guest, Pamela Fuller, as well as Mark Murphy with Ann Chow, who's the CEO of AT&T Business. It is published by Simon & Schuster, and we will certainly link to the book on all of our show pages so you get that opportunity to grab this. And thank you for joining us on Financially Speaking. Remember to share these episodes with your friends, and this one probably with your boss. And if you are the boss get the book. I think it's worthwhile. And remember when saving for your financial future, pay yourself first. 